0: Hey everyone, welcome to All the Best Craft Banter, Episode Four. We are talking today with Evan Singer, Business Development Specialist, and Joe Perry, Mobile Canning Manager from Vessel Packaging, as well as Ewan Thompson from Raft Brew Labs. Today we're talking about quality in canning. So probably more than you ever thought you would learn about canning, unless you are one of the brewers listening. Um, but promise you, next time you go to the tap room and you grab a can from the fridge, you're definitely going to be thinking about what you are learning here today. So stay tuned. Okay, as noted, we are here today talking to Evan and Joe from Vessel. So thank you guys so much for joining us. Evan is the business development specialist and Joe is the mobile canning manager. Um, So really, we'll start with the, the basics. What is Vessel and how do you guys relate to the beer industry?
1: So Vessel started as uh, as West Coast canning uh, about uh, six six seven years ago, operating primarily as as a mobile canning service provider. So uh, the founders of, uh, of Vessel saw saw was taking off in the states, and um, you know lots of craft breweries were starting to move into cans from from bottles, and uh, you know part of the issue with canning is you know the the heavy investment that needs to be made into the uh, the canning equipment, which many breweries didn't have, as well as as the can supply, so um, so they started a, a mobile canning region uh, out of Vancouver. It was quite small. They had one line that uh, basically started serving the, the Vancouver area and then the rest of BC. And they were actually trucking it over to uh, to Alberta um, for uh, for some runs. And um, yeah, vessels started growing pretty pretty rapidly. Um, today um, we operate in Vancouver, Calgary. Uh, Toronto as well as uh, mobile canning satellites in Montreal and Ottawa. Um so we offer full scale um, mobile canning and and end-to-end can supply. Um so one of the things that they saw pretty early on was that um, in addition to the um, you know the 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 barrier to entry with with equipment there was also an issue of of can supply and accessibility. So the uh, the major can suppliers and manufacturers um, really, only sell full truck cans, and that can be anywhere from 150 to 200,000 cans at a time. Um, traditionally, cans have been uh, pre-printed, so um, they're they're produced and then printed in kind of one shot, and then shipped from the manufacturing plant in those, you know, 150 to 200,000 can multiples. And that's just not a um, that's not a reasonable um, scale for for most craft breweries to be buying. What equates to about 700 hectoliters worth of one one skew at a time, uh, and you know, it's a huge huge investment in capital, in um, in inventory, in warehouse space. Um, so what they saw was that there's an opportunity to buy full truckloads of of blank cans, and then offer those in much smaller quantities, um, either as blank cans to the breweries or with the application of a shrink sleeve. Uh, or a pressure-sensitive label. So those are really the three main uh, types of can decoration today. Is is the pre-printed cans, which is really uh, only accessible to you know the larger scale of craft breweries, and then into um, into the macro side of things. Um, shrink sleeves are are more of an intermediate step, uh, and then for you know, really small runs, you know, a lot of flexibility. Uh, then we get into pressure-sensitive labels. Um, so today, um, the majority of our business is actually the can supply. Um, we're selling cans uh, all across North America. Um, you know, customers as far as as Mexico, uh, not very much, um, but all over the states. Um, but really, the core of our market is is Canada. Um, you know, the BC Alberta craft craft trees are are booming, and um, you know we've we've tried to sustain, uh, really grow with. The industry here. So as as um you know as craft beers boomed in in Alberta, um you know we expanded our operations. So instead of uh, trucking in from BC, we set up a a satellite uh, with uh, with zero issue actually. Um and then in the last couple of years we set up our own warehouse uh, where we have a full mirror of our Vancouver operation. Um, um so sleeving, labeling, and uh, and three can lines that are out of uh, out of Calgary.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's a great, a great overview of a vessel. And kind of to put one of the things you said into context for the Small Brewers Association, we define craft right now below 400,000 hectoliters. And that's still quite well above our even biggest members. So 700 is exponentially larger than where our members are even sitting at right now. So just to kind of give a bit of context there. And what you kind of alluded to this, so I'm going to jump around on our, our, predetermined questions here, Um, you kind of mentioned um, the can shortages and what was happening during COVID and having to make those investments. So a lot of breweries obviously have had to pivot. Some of them were anticipating only ever being serviced out of their tap room, but because of COVID and needing to get their products to consumers. Obviously, they needed things like mobile canning lines or investing in their own canning lines or figuring out how to even get their products into cans. So, what kind of investment are we talking about that these these breweries had to make in the last fifteen months?
1: yep, so um so vessel was definitely trying to uh, make an effort to serve as as much as possible on on the mobile side. But the reality was um, you know we we weren't able to keep up on on the canning side, so a lot of breweries um, uh, either there there's really two i'd say two subsets of breweries that that would have looked to getting their own canning um operation the the really small end where it's just not financially feasible for us to serve on a on a regular basis um you know our our minimums are not are not huge but but they can be high especially if um it's a remote brewery um and then on the on the other side kind of the larger craft breweries that were still mobile canning um where really they were they were growing to the point where it it was going to make sense for them to invest in their own can line. Um, our uh, you know our can lines were all purchased from from Wild Goose, um, and so they they recently you know right before the pandemic released a um, um, kind of a a, a, a mid small scale model um, called the Gosling um, that was really focused on those. Tap rooms, you know, up to like very small distributing breweries. Um, you know, a very small footprint could run um, you know, call it 10 to 15 cans per minute. Um, but as opposed to a manual uh filling operation, it was, it was really a kind of a, a very small scale of an automated can line. Um and so that that's right at the lower end of, of what we'd consider a, a canning line. Um and that that would start at about fifty thousand dollars Um, going up to, you know, kind of the larger scale, what, um, which will run, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 cans a minute, depending on the product, the can size and really the filler there with, once you get to a larger can line, the issue is not just the cost of the can line, it's all the ancillary equipment. So with a gosling, you can feed it by hand. You can pack out by hand with a, you know, with a larger can line, then you start looking at depalletizers um, pack off equipment. Um, so, you know, I'd say, uh, um, you know, a wild goose setup could be, you know, around $250,000. Once you factor in that ancillary equipment, uh, once you start getting into a, a rotary high speed filler, um, you know, you could be looking at a million dollars to start with, with a can line with, you know, with a high speed depalletizer and, uh, and the, the associated pack off equipment.
0: So hopefully our breweries and planning are listening right now. <laughs> And then so was or is the shortage or potential shortage of cans still something that we're looking at? I know a couple of times um, over the last 17 months, that's become a concern. Um, obviously, a lot of companies had to transition to more packaged products. like Even you get Coca-Cola and the soft drinks, like they had to go to more canning as well. So the demand, I imagine, was greater. But I know that there were other attributing factors. Is it still something that we're considering and we're looking at?
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that's on the radar and definitely not something that's going to be solved overnight. Um, so the, the can shortage was going to happen independent of, of COVID, um, COVID exacerbated and, and exposed, uh, the problem, but it was, it was going to happen, um, and it was primarily a, a manufacturing, um, a bottleneck. So right now there, there are some supply chain issues with, with, you know, aluminum raw materials. Um, but Really, pre-COVID, the, the main issue that, that we were anticipating was that the demand for cans was growing faster than um, the can manufacturers in North America were were building out, um, you know, new plants, upgrading existing plants to to add to their um, their production uh, capacity. So um, there was CO, and and just like you said, COVID uh, forced a lot of uh, beverage from. Uh, on premise to, to off premise. Um, so the, you know, craft breweries uh, making up a, a really small percentage of the market were not really the the cause of, of, you know, the exacerbation of the shortage. It was, it was Coke. Um, you know, when, when Coke grows by, uh, you know, 10% when their planned growth was, was four or 5%, that's way more catastrophic than all of craft growing by a hundred percent. It's, it right. just, it just, sucked up all the cans from the market and it really reflected what we were seeing at the start of the pandemic where the the standard 355 mil cans uh, or 12 ounce cans were were really, really in in a in a short position. Um, and then we were seeing we had a little bit more of of other sizes. Um, but with with things starting to to reopen, um, we're seeing that there is definitely a permanent shift of of some of the market to cans, but as of now, we're actually seeing more of a shortage on the the 473 mil cans than we were on on the 355 mil cans. Um, okay. Looking looking ahead, um, that there there are um, so the major can manufacturers in in North America are uh, Crown, who who we work with, uh, Ball, and Arda. Uh, they're all either building uh, greenfield plants or adding lines to existing plants to add to their production uh, capacity. There are also um, uh, European can manufacturers that are building plants in North America to add to that, um, that volume. So um, we are definitely seeing them uh, trying to catch up. Um, we think they will be caught up at, uh, at some point. It's tough to uh, predict when. Um, for 2022, we're, we're Thinking that the market's going to be similar to what it's like right now, um, you know, our so we we have uh, an allotment of cans that we can purchase from Crown, um, you know, throughout the year, and that gets broken down by size, by month, by by manufacturing plant. Before 2019, um, we could exceed that um, without any sort of issue. They, you know, our allotment was X, and we were buying you know 50 percent more than that. For 2019, it was the first time where we actually got held to our allotment. And same thing for 2020. So we had a fixed allotment um, 2020, 2021. And that is the number of cans that we will be able to buy from Crown. Um, 2022 will look like that. Um, And then going into 2023, we're, we're, expecting a little more flexibility on the market Um, for all of our printed can customers we're asking them to provide a forecast on on what they need Um, for any of our larger uh, you know sleeve or label can customers kind of same idea we want to make sure that we're supporting our, you know, our existing customers and our core market before, before trying to grow outside of that. So we want to make sure that we have secured enough volume for all of the, um, you know, Alberta breweries we work with, the BC breweries we work with, um, the the East Coast breweries. And at that point, if we have any volume remaining, that's when we start looking at, at growing to, to new markets.
0: Makes sense. No, that's, that's really interesting to know and obviously planning ahead is is huge right now there's a bit more opportunity to, to do it over the what last year was so i think a lot of people are looking forward to what's going on and that's good information to know we kind of already touched on what you see the market doing um but what are vessel's long term goals
1: yeah we're um we are our vision and and mission is really to to, to support the craft beverage industry and, in, you know, in North America, um, our, our heart is in craft and, um, you know, be it, be it beer, which is as of now, the, the bulk of our business, um, you know, uh, spirits, cocktails, uh, wine and cider, um, you know, our goal is to, is to make sure that we're, you know, the, the, the premier supplier of, of cans and can decoration um, to, to the craft industry across, across North America. Um, we're, you know, we're, our, our growth has been fairly, fairly rapid. Um, and, you know, I think our, our ownership is, you know, our, our, the founders of, of Vessel still, still own 100% of the company. Um, it's, it's a great group to, uh, to work for, and they have a really strong vision for, for what they want to see in the future. Um, and yeah, it, it's, we just want to make sure that we, you know, we maintain a strong relationship with, with Crown, um, you know, supplies the the vast majority of the cans that we purchase um, as well with our, our customers in the craft uh, industry. So, you know, there's, there's some areas that are not as well served in, in Canada, um, you know, Saskatchewan um, doesn't really have any, uh, any sort of full-time mobile canning. We supply them out of, uh, out of Calgary. Um, Manitoba has a mobile canning operation that we supply with cans, um, and then we have a physical presence in in Ontario and Quebec, uh, but not so much Eastern Canada. So those are definitely markets that we want to tap into a little more, um, as well as as into the states. Right now, we don't have a physical footprint in the states, but it's definitely something that's um, something that we're we're considering. And you know, we want to make sure that we're not uh, growing uh, too much, too fast, and and not able to to sustain that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, while cans remain a, the limiting factor, um, it limits, it limits what we, what we are going to do, because like I said, we are, our priorities to our, our current customers, um, to the Canadian craft industry. And the last thing we want to do is, you know, stretch ourselves too thin and not be able to make the commitments that, that we're making right now to our, to our customers. Makes sense.
0: Yeah. I think there's a lot of growth potential throughout Canada. So it'll be exciting to see where you guys go. Sure. Well, thank you, Evan. I think we're turning kind of over to the technical side right now. So we might throw it over to Joe. So in general layman's terms, we do have some of the general public that listen. Uh, What is the process of canning?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. So I guess in any sort of a canning operation, it can be broken down into three or four parts. There's uh, as as Evan was mentioning earlier, there's your depalletizer or some sort of conveyance to take the cans from the pallet, organize them into either your twist rinse or your canning line directly. There's a rinse uh, rinse section for the cans, and then it goes into the filler itself, where um, where you purge the can with CO2 to get rid of the oxygen, fill it with the product, apply the lid, and then it goes into the final part of the uh, of the operation, which is the seamer. Um, where the the can end or lid is applied, and then the seam is formed uh, into the in the seamer. So that's sort of the simplest terms of it. Um, as as Evan was saying, we run sort of a medium sized line. Like the four or five head fillers are are kind of that that sort of niche that is still sort of in the craft um, craft size. Um, so for those, those are gravity-fed machines, ours is anyways, so you can have either a gravity-fed machine or a counter-pressure machine. Um, and so the ones that we run are all gravity-fed, um, which has its own limitations as far as like what carbs and uh, temperatures you can can at. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the basic nuts and bolts of a of a canning line.
0: Definitely more than just putting beer into a can.
2: <laughs> for sure, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perfect. And so when a brewery or distillery are canning their product, what are they watching for during the process to ensure it's going smoothly and they're putting quality behind their label?
2: So for, for the quality um, controls, there's sort of, I see sort of three main, main factors. First being sanitization. So that's your CIP before and after and, and during your run. Um, the second being, especially for beer, is oxygen pickup. Um, so you're monitoring, there's kind of three, three ways that you can monitor that on our gravity machines, uh, gravity fed machines is, um, the CO2 purge pre-fill. So that's essentially filling the can with CO2 to eliminate any oxygen, uh, the foam on the beer. So if there's a nice consistent, uh, foam on the beer, um, that'll, that'll eliminate any sort of pickup. And then the pre-fill purge, some, some machines will have what's called a DO but essentially, it's just a brush or some sort of a comb that uh, that sort of lays a layer of CO two on top of that foam right before the lid is applied. Um, and then the third major part of quality control is the integrity of the seam of the can. Um, so the way that we ensure that is uh, we have on site we have our hand hand measuring tools where we'll we'll uh, break down the seams and measure all of the integral parts of the of the uh, of the seams throughout the day. And then after the fact, and and throughout, so every day we'll come back and we'll run it through what's uh, called our kumki machine, which does an actual cross section of the of the seam, gets you your exact measurements, um, and getting getting uh, on top of that every day, making sure that you're checking your your seams and fixing any sort of travel before it goes out of operating range, because there is a range that they can uh, they can. Still be a, a perfectly good seamat, and as long as you're you're dialing that in before it falls out of that operating range, so it's uh, it's important to be checking checking those seams daily and putting them back into spec before you're uh, before you you've lost a batch of beer because you have uh, bad seams essentially. And <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> just to uh, yeah, just to just to step
1: in there. So when when we when we were talking about investment and and can lines. Uh, one of the important things that I that I missed was was just that the investment in in quality equipment. Um, so you know we would never we would never encourage anyone to fill cans um, that are going to be sold outside of their their own tasting room. You know within a matter of days um, to do that without oxygen measuring equipment and uh, and seam inspection equipment. Um, so the oxygen is not something that can be measured by hand. There's just no, there's no way to do it. Um, the equipment that we have, you know, it's there, it's a Hoffman's Pentair, gehaltometer and it, it just measures dissolved gas in, uh, in liquid. So we can measure the oxygen that's in the tank before we fill, we can measure the, uh, the, the CO2, um, how much is in there and we can also do it in, in can and that machine, you know, cost cost more than uh, than a small car. Uh, they're about twenty about twenty thousand uh, dollars U.S. Um, and about the same on the on the kinky, uh, seam inspection equipment that we have. So, uh, anybody can can check a seam by hand. Um, you can do manual teardowns with um, you know with calipers. Uh, the problem with that is there's going to be a lot of variability from person to person. Um, so you know, hand measurements are just not accurate or precise compared to what the kunky can do. So the the hand measurements that we do are great for kind of in run, seeing if something drifts because it's one operator who's typically taking those measurements over the run, even if they're not um, precise, or even if they're not accurate, they should be precise. Mm -hmm. So they should be within the same range and they'll be able to pick up drift. But the good thing about the the kunky is that it is accurate. It is precise. And we can also trend uh, a can line over time, like Joe was saying, and catch issues before they happen. We would much rather um, dial in a seamer on at our warehouse. You know, If it looks like it's drifting, then notice it has drifted out of spec, have to shut down uh, a can run, dial it back in and then start running. And then we run into issues of having um, cans with, with um, with an unknown uh, level of scene integrity. So by keeping it in spec, um, by fixing it before we we get on site, then we know that every can that's filled is going to be solid.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. And um, kind of going on the topic of quality, we'll bring in Ewan Thompson from uh, Raft Brew Labs to help with the conversation. So maybe we will start with an introduction, Ewan. What is Raft Brew Labs?
3: It's a lot. It's been a great discussion so far with these guys. Um, yeah, like like Vessel, actually, we've got a lot of overlapping philosophy, I think. I started Raft about a year and a half ago, uh, largely to support the craft brewing sector. Um, you know, our whole mandate is to reduce the barrier for entry uh, for smaller craft breweries so that they can access lab services without needing to build staff and supply their own lab in-house. Um, so, you know, I spent six years uh, managing various aspects of, of the Phillips Brewing and Malting Company. Uh, departments in Victoria. So I was I was running the lab, the soda and tonics program, malting and distillery. And um you know, through all that experience, I've really been able to change the game for Western Canadian breweries, but uh, especially the ones that we're thinking of considering uh, or thinking about building out their own lab, you know, at that great cost and, uh, for for staffing and supplying and building it out um, before discovering us and, and what we're doing. So, you know, we've already helped put out a whole bunch of fires at, at a number of facilities and, uh, and that's largely been through our chemical and microbiological and sensory analysis work.
0: Yeah, definitely. I love that, and I know a lot of our members uh, utilize your services and speak very highly of you. So, any other members who want to get in touch, we'll have info. Um, <laughs> so, in discussing the quality control in the canning process, uh, where do you guys fit in?
3: Yeah, we we do a lot of microbiological control for breweries that uh, that are doing their own in-house canning. Um, it's it's something where you definitely want to be checking things every every canning run that you do, um, in case there's an issue that pops up. Usually, you'll see something start to show itself in small quantities, you know, small bacterial concentrations, for example, that build over time because almost always on a canning line, it has something to do with a hidden biofilm somewhere. And I'll get into what that's all about later, but, um, yeah, that that's the first big issue is the microbiological control. Uh, we can also help identify shelf stability issues. So a lot of our clients use us for you know sensory modeling of shelf stability, uh, and then we can work our way back to figure out where in the process something might be happening. Um, I think uh, you know as Joe and Evan were referring to oxygen is always going to be your number one uh, cause of shelf stability degradation, but there can be another a you know, whole range of of causes uh, on top of that um, that that can happen at any stage of the process upstream. And then um you know we offer full package analysis with various chemical and microbiological testing so that uh, people just have that uh, long term look at at what's going on in their final products.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And so I know you've told me an interesting story before about the canning process, and it it kind of seems like it's going according to plan but then something at the steaming stage caused kind of a funky beer to happen. So is it really as simple as that?
3: Not at all. Uh, (laughs) there there are just so many nooks and crannies that uh, microbes can hide out in a packaging line. And, uh, you know, whether you're bottling or canning more, everybody's sort of more into canning these days, but, uh, they both need to be looked at it, you know, with their own strengths and weaknesses. And, uh, one of them with cans is, is just the distance that the can travels between filling and seaming, uh, you know, wide open to the environment. And, and in some cases, uh, based on the can uh, canner design, you might have foam scraping along a ceiling or something like that. And these are just ideal places to build up microbial growth over time. And so I, I mentioned biofilms before. Um, biofilms are effectively in a brewing setting, uh, they'll start with a, a yeast, often just your brewing yeast from in-house that'll attach itself to a surface, whether it's stainless steel or plastic or Teflon and, um, and start to grow because it's being fed nutrients and oxygen again. Um, Normally yeast will stop growth at the end of fermentation because it's run out of oxygen. It's run out of uh, all kinds of sugars and things like that. As soon as you reintroduce oxygen, it's uh, it's going to kickstart its metabolism again. So at that point, it'll actually stick to the surface, suck up all the oxygen in the available vicinity, and then provide this really great anaerobic habitat for, for the strict anaerobic bacteria that uh, that are really great at spoiling beer. So, no problem if brewing yeast gets back into your beer at the end of the process but if you get something like bacteria called Megasphira cerevisiae uh, then then we're we're looking at serious problems downstream even if a single cell enters your can at that stage Uh, we've seen um, issues where six weeks after canning uh, the beer started smelling like a you know, it's sort of a mild, almost diacetyl-like, buttery smell that that quickly turns into uh, like you're changing a diaper, and um, and nobody likes to smell that in their living room. So, um, yeah. It's uh, that's kind of the worst-case scenario for for bugs that get into your uh, your canning process uh, on the bacterial side. But then, of course, everybody's seen issues where cans are exploding on shelves uh, because of a wild yeast that got in and re-fermented the product. Um, and and those are also more than happy to set up shop on a canning line. So um, I think you know I've heard this from a lot of big industry players uh, from studies and, and and industry research papers and so on. But but people think that about 50% of sp- spoilage incidents happen on canning lines and, and packaging lines generally. So very, very common place to see problems as a result of those uh, biofilms that form on surfaces.
0: Hmm. And so maybe uh, Evan and Joe, do you have a recommendation, and I, I'm sure there is, for those who have their own canning lines, how often should they be maybe applying sanitizers or cleaning them? Like, Is it in the course of a run for a regular craft brewery or after each run? Like, How, how should they measure that?
2: Yeah, so for, for us, we're a bit of a different situation because we go to so many different sites. So we have to be kind of extra uh, vigilant about that. Um, one of the steps that we put into place is that we, we don't package anything with those ye- wild yeasts. Um, that's kind of one step. But as far as uh, sanitization and, and major cleaning of the line, you should be doing your CIPs di- like every use for sure before and after. Um, We use a um, luminometer, pardon, I can't say (laughs) all of them as much, but a a luminometer. Uh, So essentially, it's just measuring ATP, uh, which is a a, a chemical compound that is present. uh, It's it's what living cells metabolize. So it's present uh, when there's something living or there was something living on that surface. Um, so when we are doing our CIP at the beginning of the day, we use a rather aggressive CIP with our with our chemical mi- mixtures. And then we use this luminometer to, to uh, test any of those high, high uh, traffic areas, any of those places where those biofilms could could sort of start to grow uh, with that luminometer. Lum- <laughs> that'll be wrong, I'm sure. But yeah, we test those those high traffic areas uh, for that ATP. And if it doesn't pass our test, um, then we we reperform. Uh, the CIPs and, and until it does pass. And then as far as getting into the, all those nooks and crannies that Ewan was talking about, that should be regular uh, weekly uh, by like bi-weekly for sure. We take our belts apart. We, we replace soft elements. We, we get into all of the manifolds um, with a, uh, we do an an EC green acid clean and then we also do a chloro clean um, on separate, separate days, um, just to attack any of those places where microbes could uh, build up, and any of those places like underneath the, the conveyors, um, any of those places where the, the lids or the tops of cans may touch. Um, so, yeah, honestly, you can't do it often enough, um, but definitely CIPs before and after, and then a very sort of regimented cleaning schedule to get inside those belts and any of those sort of moving parts because there is, there's lots of them on uh, on those canning lines for sure absolutely
1: for um yeah for for folks running their own can lines i think it's really important to you know to know that in, yeah before and after every every run the can line should be left clean um, you know can lines like to be run they don't like to to sit so the more you're running your line kind of counter-intuitively the, the less often you should need to to cip but at the same time kind of the more often you need to get those those real deep cleans in because while it's running and you're not cleaning um there's that tendency to to build up um you know one question we get asked often is is are the cans sterile do they come in sterile and why like why do you rinse the cans before they're being filled so cans are considered sanitary so if they're kept in a you know in a dry temperature controlled environment they're not a good host for any sort of um you know micro growth um but they're not they're not sterile um when we rinse the cans uh pre-fill and we recommend everybody rinse their cans pre-fill that's more to to remove particulate matter from the cans that might have built up over production or storage than to actually sanitize the cans. The reason we use a dilute sanitizer solution for that is actually to sanitize the water that they're being rinsed with than to actually sanitize the cans themselves. We don't want um, you know, any sort of city water, which is not typically a, um, uh, you know, a source of contamination, but either way, just in case there's something in the lines, we don't want that to to contaminate the beer. Um, you know, high speed can lines will actually have um, uh, an ionized air rinse as opposed to a, a water rinse. And the reason for that is the faster the, the line is running, uh, the less time there is for the can for any liquid in the can to drain out. In that twist rinse and that water is a great source of of oxygen more than uh, more than anything so um whether or not you're rinsing with with you know sanitary water or with ionized air that that rinse is is not necessarily uh, meant for microbial um, removal but it's definitely a key step in uh, in the process so
0: for vessel um for any of as the members or breweries who are looking to open up in the near future, do you guys offer a service or some kind of training to ensure that they know all those places that they are needing to clean and, or will you guys go in and clean it for them if they want to do that on a regular basis to ensure that it's done? Yep. that's,
1: that's not a typical service that we offer. Uh, it is something that we have done with, with mobile canning customers who've moved into their own, their own can lines, you know, occasionally, um, you know, when, when a brewery knows that they're going to be going into a can line in the next few months, um, you know, they'll have operators shadow our operators to see how we run, um, see the end to end process. Um, You know, we're more than happy to, um, to lend our expertise uh, where we can. Um, A lot of, you know, a lot of it is, is really just making sure you have the right procedures in place and having operators that know what to look for, what to do when, uh something doesn't go according to the procedure so you know we're, we're more than happy to share our, our knowledge there um, but typically the can line manufacturer will be the one to provide um kind of that that end user training on how to operate the line how to clean the line properly um, different can lines are are made of different materials and need to be cleaned uh differently um you know there are aluminum components on the on the wild goose line um, which is why we don't use, um, you know, caustic or or strong acids to clean our line. There are other can manufacturers that don't have that limitation, so uh, using their CIP procedure on our line or vice versa wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. So really, the manufacturers know what's what's best for the line, and then working with someone like you, and when um, when a when an issue pops up, um, you know, we'll help dial in that, that CIP procedure if, if there's a change needed.
2: We do have, it's, it's another sort of a thing like Evan was talking about, about just supporting the community around for a lot of our customers. We do have some of these small sort of value adds that we can um, sort of offer, which is some seam, some seam testing, some small things along those lines, but making use of like a raft, Mm -hmm. raft brew labs, like um, that's such a great asset to have in the city. Uh, just because we are, our uh, quality controls are all based heavily around our process and what we need to do day to day, whereas uh, like we're not a mobile lab, we're a mobile canning service. So we're making sure that our processes are, are in control and are, are doing what they need to be um, or doing what they need to do. But making, making use of uh, UN services, I think, is, is incredible to have in the city for sure.
1: We yeah we we recognize that that the can line is absolutely a potential source of of contamination and for anything that's in our control we do we do everything we can to to prevent that like Joe said um, you know we don't can um, you know any fermented beverages with uh, with non brewer's yeast so um, kombucha for example which is um, you know fermented with uh, you know bacteria and yeast that aren't typical. Um, beer fermenters and are actually considered beer spoilers. Um, you know, even though we're confident in our CIP procedures, um, like you said, there's always that risk for a biofilm that may not cause problems if it's only exposed to brewers yeast, but if you bring in a, another microbe could lead to to major issues. So we try to avoid those products. Um, and like Joe said, we, do CIP, we don't just do our CIP, we also verify uh, the efficacy of our CIP with um, with AT- ATP bioluminescence. Uh, Joe, you, you nailed that one on the head. Um, <laughs> I, I brought up my notes, so I'm not going to lie. I have my notes <laughs> here. <laughs> um, the limitation to ATP bioluminescence is that it can only measure, uh, it can only measure what it is exposed to. Mm. So we can't, we can't swab each and every, um, you know, square inch of the machine, um, but we do, we do the, the hot spots. So, Uh, We'll test the fill heads, we'll test the lid dispense um, anywhere like Joe said where cans or liquid come into contact with with the machine. Um, What's totally outside of our control is what's coming into the the line Mm. in the liquid. So we ask our customers to make sure that we're not canning uh, products that we shouldn't be canning, Um, but if there's a microbial contamination before filling. That's not something that we have control over. So um, it's always good to, you know, if if you ever have a, a micro issue, it's really important to understand where, where it came from, um, because that's the only way you're going to prevent it going forward. So we do everything we can to make sure that the can line is not that source. Um, and then if there is a, an upstream issue in, in the brewery, either in the bright tank or the filtration process, um, you know, or even in fermentation, um, you know, that's really something the brewery um, needs to be able to identify independent of us, but, you know, possibly with, with you and so.
0: Gotcha. And so as far as Vessel is concerned in the, in this whole conversation, is there anything else that you want people to know about the canning line and ensuring their quality?
2: As far as um, if you're using a, a gravity fed machine uh, like we use, Having your your product in uh, in the proper temperature to carbonation ratio is gonna is gonna drastically cut down on your loss um, yeah, kind of everything we we're going over for is sanitization, constant seam seam integrity checks really there's there's the three three areas where you can you can spoil your canning day and that's that's your uh, your startup, and if that carbon temp is where it needs to be, then that startup's going to go nice and smooth that's uh, during the during the run um, or is the sanitization before the run, so you're not getting any infectants uh, and then the seams. so just those three things constant attention. Um, that's kind of the the main focus that I would say if you're if you're thinking about packaging uh, with cans mm-hmm.
1: yep the um you know we we do everything we can to make sure that there's no Degradation of the product from the tank to to the filled can, um, but there is nothing a can line can do to remove oxygen from from beer. The second beer is exposed to oxygen; it's there and it's going to oxidize. Um, some folks will try to scrub, you know, high, high DO tanks with CO2, which can cause other quality issues. Um, so really, if you were the the best thing to do with can with canned beer is to make sure that it is taken care of up to the can and then and then we do everything we can to take it from there um but can you know there there is going to be some do pickup in in can we try to minimize that as much as possible um but if high do beer is coming into the can line um high do beer is going to be in the can and it is not going to have the shelf life that we would want it to
0: have Mm -hmm. That's great. So we know that the equipment is being taken care of and it's doing as much as it can, but you, and maybe you can add a bit more to what are some of the biohazards in the brewery that brewers are paying attention to as it's going through the process of canning.
3: Yeah. I talked a lot about the bio, the biofilm formation that can happen, um, at all, you know, on all these surfaces. That's, that's for sure the biggest one to look for. Um, you know, if if you're using interesting, you know, we'll say interesting yeasts, like, uh, you know, Belgian yeasts and so on that a lot of people are into for, uh, making those drier beers, then, uh, you know, you definitely want to be looking for that and treating that as a biohazard. Um, and, you know, really making sure that you've, you've given the, the extra CIP and, and the extra attention on the microbiology, uh, following all of that. But, um, the other thing that we we've been coming across more and more is, uh, just brewing yeasts as spoilage organisms. Um, you know, these days there's a lot of back sweetened products. Um, there's a lot of products that carry a lot of residual sugar. And, uh, one of the most obvious, but kind of counterintuitive ways that you can spoil that beer is to have too much residual yeast, just standard brewing yeast left over in it. And this, like I said earlier, if you, um, if you have that, um, oxygen agitation, even a little bit of oxygen can start to really, uh, invigorate that yeast and get it metabolizing again, soaking up any residual sugar, um, free amino nitrogen. So amino acids that are left over from your process are one of the worst ways to open to open that invitation for microbes to start growing again. That's why, you know, with our clients, we like to see, um, nice, low residual fan levels. It's, uh, it's really a really great way to keep your products stable in, in mo- more ways than one. and um, and so you can kind of consider all these things as biohazards. Really, there are a lot of uh, chemical and biological barriers that you can put in place in your product, um, you know, including alcohol, including hop acids, uh, including a nice pH, including a nice uh, maybe antigen load that could reinvigorate some of those microbes. The danger won't be nearly as high.
0: And obviously we're all sensitive to cleaning process after the last year, um, everyone's sanitizing more and more, um, but breweries as food manufacturers, that's what they're classified as, and have always had to pay attention to the processes. What in particular are they doing and should they be doing?
3: I think the best thing you can do is is to keep in close contact with your chemical supplier. the uh, The chemical industry is always evolving, even just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a site visited a brewery that uh, we, we you know we met up with their chemical supplier and they were telling us all about a brand new uh, version of the acid sanitizer that that's able to um, really you know drop the pH even more way, way, way below what uh, they were typically seeing for these chemicals. I think these are the sorts of things that the brewing industry needs to pay really close attention to. Um, and keep up with. Uh, because, you know, in the past you start as you start off as a home brewer and none of your equipment is ever clean because you're, you're relying on, you know, home brewing supplies. And then you move into the brewing industry and you, as a commercial brewery, and you try and use the old uh, home brewing tricks and eventually those fail on you. It's only a matter of time. And then, um, and, you know, you, you, improve your processes, you improve your CIP, um, you know, maybe you get some automation and all that sort of stuff and you're testing your chemicals. Um, but, uh, you know, at, along the way there's just all these new tools coming out um, you know over time and the the craft industry is getting more and more access to to really great tools so i would encourage people to make sure that they're uh keeping close contact with their chemical supplier
1: I, i think one of the one of the mixed blessings of beer is is the fact that it is inherently um not not aseptic but you know pathogens can't typically grow in in beer so um, you know, for, for a lot of history, you know, beer was a safer liquid to drink than, than water for, for that reason. Um, you know, the, the hops, the, the alcohol inhibit the growth of, you know, the pH, um, typically inhibit the growth of any, any pathogens. The problem is that that leads to a, a false sense of security because, you know, when it comes to food quality, food safety, um, pathogens, aren't the only, aren't the only risk there, are you know, physical risks that need to be taken into account, like foreign material in beer, um, you know, bottling lines are are a notorious uh, risk. Um, anytime a bottle breaks um, or if it's capped improperly and it can shatter when it's opened, um, you know, there's a physical risk there. Um, chemical risks, again, the, the cleaning chemicals that the breweries use are, are incredibly harsh. And if cleaning procedures are not proper, you can have contamination uh, of your beer with with those chemicals. So um, you know the the Master Brewers Association, the Brewers Association gives some great uh, resources in terms of setting up a, a GMP program, good manufacturing uh, practices, um, HACCP hazard analysis, critical control point uh, safety, um, and you know some of those may seem like they're you know too advanced or too difficult for smaller breweries to to start, but. They're, they're not, they're, they're basic, you know, good practices, setting up a foundation and then, you know, finding somebody who, who has a quality background, like, like you and who, who can, you know, provide guidance. Um, I know there are consultants that, you know, that help with setting up uh, programs like that, but every brewery should have at the bare minimum uh, you know GMP program in place
3: yeah it's a, it's a huge part of what we do is identifying critical control points around breweries and uh, and just like highlighting the hot spots of things that could get you into trouble based on what we've seen in the past um, everything has a has a either kind of a health or a product quality implication and if it's a health implication you better make sure you're looking after that so you know uh, when we're talking about glass blowing up and and potentially entering into packaging and that sort of thing that 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 is something you know we've seen and and it and it does pro, um, produce that health hazard you know wild yeast is another one exploding packaging these are the sorts of things that can actually hurt people and you do need to make sure that you're looking after those first and foremost
0: mm-hmm. for sure no this has been an amazing conversation um, I'll just leave it really open is there anything else you want to add maybe you and I'll start with you
3: uh, yeah, yeah. We're so just in time for our, um, you know, the twenty twenty one Alberta Beer Awards. I would, I would encourage everybody to think uh, closely about how they're going to be entering their products this year. Um, last year we did a whole cheat sheet based on the twenty twenty awards, where we had, you know, compiled all this data from from thirty one different products. So we've uh, put that back on our website. It's available if you head to raftbrewlabs.ca. You can find it. Um, and we'll be announcing a similar offer for the 2021 awards really shortly. Um, all of this is stuff that relates back to your product quality and how you can really build out that that program to make sure that you're not just winning awards, but but using the information that award that awards showcases really can provide you with in order to uh, to incrementally improve your products and make sure that you're getting consistency over time. So um, yeah, feel free to reach out anytime. We're we're happy to talk about all that.
0: Awesome, Evan and Joe. Anything else you would like to add?
1: Yeah, just just want to you know thank you so much for for having us and and you know want to thank anybody listening. The you know the Alberta beer industry is you know is the reason we we exist in you know in in Alberta. You know we we do everything we can to support support the industry here, but you know we we acknowledge that the you know we we exist because of the industry, and you know everybody who's you know kept kept going through the pandemic, kept their doors open or you know, moved into packaging, uh, you know, we hope we were able to, you know, to do good by you and, um, you know, we're, we're excited to, to work with you in the future, um, you know, supporting your growth and, and it's really a a symbiotic relationship. So, um, you know, we really, really appreciate everybody here and, um, yeah, that's, that's
2: pretty much it for me. Uh, Joe, (laughs) you said it better than I could, but I would just, yeah, I want to say thanks for, for, having me on here to, to fumble my way through that. And it was really awesome to hear what you had to say to you. And that was, that was great. Um, so yeah, just a pleasure. Um, as always just happy to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, no, thank you guys for taking the time. Obviously we, as the association appreciate your, the relationships that we have with you guys and we fully recognize the value that you bring to the uh, brewers in Alberta and, uh, If you guys weren't around to help them out, I'm sure that we as an association wouldn't exist. So it it all comes together. So, yeah, I appreciate you guys taking the time. And uh, for our members, uh, check our member email. We'll have more information in there for you. Thank you, everyone, for that conversation. And Ewan, you actually have a separate initiative that you've been working on. Can you tell us a bit about that?
3: Sure thing. Yeah, each and uh, You can go visit that and take a look at some of our members. It's an initiative that really actually got its traction in the craft brewing industry here in Alberta. There's now something like 25 Albertan craft beverage companies involved in it, and we're looking to find ways to support solutions to uh, the drug poisoning or overdose crisis, which is uh, now claiming more lives than any other cause uh, among our working-age population and, and, and in fact, killed more people in 2020 than COVID. Um, So we're not really seeing the public policy response we need. And, uh, and part of that is because businesses in the past have been so opposed to seeing things like supervised consumption sites in their neighborhood. Um, Mm -hmm. so what we're doing is we're kind of allying with public policy experts, uh, health policy people, um, uh, people who use drugs, uh, you know, frontline harm reduction workers, nurses, doctors, all kinds of people and finding real solutions to this. Um, with the recognition that there's really no good evidence that crime or social disorder or anything else happens uh, the way that it's told um, when a supervised consumption site goes into a particular location. So we're also supporting initiatives like uh, safe supply programs, um, needle exchanges, uh, all the sorts of things that actually help keep people alive while uh, our politicians fumble about trying to get the right policy solutions in place.
0: Fair enough. So really a grassroots initiative. And then does your website also have kind of that information that you were talking about at a pretty high level there, but um, kind of statistics around it and giving people the actual facts about what goes on around supervised consumption sites or how this actually is affecting so many people?
3: Absolutely. Uh, if you go to our resources page on the website, each and every.org slash resources, you'll find all kinds of uh, news media articles that have come out over the past couple of months, um, you know, places like the Ship and Anchor, uh, Broken City, Arcadia Brewing, uh, Polar Park, um, and various others have, have been, you know, in the news describing their experiences. Uh, you know, some of these places have either worked as frontline harm reduction, um, advocates or have had overdoses happen in their, in their establishments that they've responded to. And, uh, it's, it's just been really powerful to start to hear those messages come out about, you know, this is not something to be afraid of. There's no reason to think of our drug as any different than anybody else's drug. And, uh, and it's time to sort of grow up and, and think about this differently so that we can we can stop the deaths. Um, I just, I really want to shout out like all the, you know, the member companies, if you look at the list, it's just phenomenal. Right on our front page, you can see, you know, Annex Ale Project, New Level Cabin, mm-hmm. Dandy, Cold Garden, uh, Rail Yard, northern chicken ship and anchor um, arcadia brewing exhale uh, polar park if i didn't mention them already uh burwood distillery bent stick uh, theoretically brewing down in lethbridge agro systems blind man brewing it's just the list goes on and on Born colorado um, these are uh, outcast wild tea kombucha and uncommon cider Hogarth Malt, Red Shed Malting. Um, this is a serious group of of real industry players uh, that all want to see the same thing, and uh, I'm just so so proud to uh, to be aligned with them. Daughter Creative, Core Value Cider, Wise Guys Liquor. There's a few more for you, um, <laughs> and I apologize for anybody <laughs> I've missed. <laughs>
0: No, that's great. I think shouting out to them actually provides a good opportunity for other businesses who might be their neighbors to kind of ask them about what it is and maybe take some of the hesitation or uncertainty around what you guys are trying to achieve out of the equation. Because it's not, it's not an intimidating thing. It's really just being prepared and being ready if you need to respond to something and knowing the facts around what the effects of everything that's happening are.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, it's well put. Well put, Blair.
0: Great. Awesome. So that is each and org that everyone can go to for more information.
3: That's it. Yeah and there's a sign up form there if you if you know right away you want to join up uh it's free for now and uh you know we're we're trying to do everything we can to you know put our members in the spotlight so that uh you know we're already getting tons of responses of people saying i want to go and support those businesses that care about their community and that are willing to stick their necks out a little bit for it so um yeah thanks thanks to all of them it's it's a big deal we're we're, we're really making an impact and we're being noticed by by people in government so it's good
0: that is great to hear. Well, thank you so much for sharing that for with us. And uh, we will include more information and in the link to that uh, with the podcast on Podbean, where we host. Um, and yeah, thanks so much, Ewan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Blair. All right. Thank you guys so much for that conversation. I learned a lot. I hope everyone listening learned a lot. And like I said, next time you go and reach for a beer... You're definitely going to be thinking about all of this and everything that goes into it. So there's a lot of quality control going on, guys. This podcast is edited by Astronomic Audio, the Alberta-based podcasting company that makes big ideas sound even bigger. And thanks again to Evan, Joe, and Ewan. And if you are interested in learning a bit more about each and every, we will have that link in our description for the podcast, as well as the members keep an eye on your email this week. We have some more information from Ewan helping you guys out on residual sugars.